Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, covering the abortion battles. So earlier this week, the Supreme Court said it would hear a case involving a Mississippi law that was passed that banned abortion at 15 weeks. It's widely seen as a very bad sign in terms of perhaps the future of Roe v. Wade, which was the landmark 1973 decision that legalized abortion care. And it raises, again, the question of how abortion abortion rights and the battle over abortion is covered in the press, especially given that a lot of the journalists that write about abortion are from parts of the country or from sort of demographics of the country that have long considered the debate sort of over. We know that that's very much not the case, but I'm really interested in how the story is covered, how, what language people use and what that tells us and how people should be more careful, especially as we enter what's likely to be a very hot period now around this topic. I'm really happy to be joined by Jessica Mason Piclo. She is the executive editor of Rewired News Group and the co-host of the podcast, Boom Lawyered. And Maria Clark is a healthcare reporter with USA Today's American South team, which is a regional vertical covering the southeastern U.S. She has particular expertise on this because of the fact that she lives in Louisiana. We'll get to that in a second. Let me start, though, with Jessica. Jessica, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. I'm really glad you're here. Let's start understanding and making sure that we're on the same page about what the Supreme Court taking on this case, this Mississippi case, means. You, you wrote a piece that said the Supreme Court could end abortion rights with one word. Um, in which you you seem to think that there's a pretty good chance that Roe is going to, if not be overturned, at least chipped away. Is that right? That's correct. There are a lot of warning signs from the Supreme Court as a result of them taking up this case. Um, to start with, there they spent a lot of time thinking about it. You know, they conferenced on this case for over a dozen times over the course of seven to eight months. Uh, that's a lot of time to spend thinking about whether or not the court wants to step back into the abortion rights fight so soon after uh, a recent case out of Louisiana. So there's that. Well, just just to pause, just to pause on that point. So is it your view that given all of those conferences, the fact that they discussed it so much and jumped in is a sign of where they're likely to end up? I think it's, you know, with the Supreme Court, it's always uh, putting the various stars of the constellation together. So the number of conferences uh, is one indication. The other indication is the fact that normally when the Supreme Court steps into a fight, there's a reason, i.e. we've got uh, federal appeals courts are in disagreement on an issue or there's some new issue that the court, the highest court of the land needs to solve. We don't have those markers here. The federal Mm -hmm. courts are in unanimous agreement that laws like the kind that are in issue in this case, Mississippi's 15-week ban, are unconstitutional. So the Mm -hmm. only reason the Supreme Court is interested in taking this case is if it's interested in reconsidering that question. Yeah, and it's notable that the the 15 week ban was struck down at the district level in Mississippi. And then the Fifth Circuit, which is conservative, also struck it down. So to your point, like there wasn't a there wasn't a lot of dispute in the lower courts about this. 
correct. And, you know, the the Supreme Court has had the opportunity to step into fights like this one in Mississippi before. Alabama had passed a similar law several years ago, and its attorneys had tried to get the Supreme Court to step into that fight, and they passed. So, again, when we're looking at the various things that give us court watchers pause, those are all of the details that suggest that the court is ready to take a bold stand on abortion rights now. So I encourage folks who really want to understand um, the precedent and the law and how different courts have addressed this to, to look at what Jessica's written in Re- Rewire. I, I want to focus right now on how the media approaches this, though. Um, you know, like I said at the beginning, you know, I'm always somewhat taken aback when this comes up again, uh, over and over again. And I know that, you know, that Jessica, you've written about the sort of the long lead up to this in, uh, in the Republican party and how this has been, um, this has been the sort of game for a while, right? Mm-hmm. G- give me a sense of how you see the, the coverage in, especially in the national press around the, the battle over abortion rights. I think this is really, you know, your question just hits at the heart of this, which is, and and we see some of this whenever abortion rights cases come up in the news, which is that uh, the public by and large largely supports abortion rights. Most yeah. people feel like this is a settled issue and that there are sort of fringe elements on either side that are really battling it out. Um, and oftentimes that's how the coverage Um, ends up in the national media because, you know, that's sort of reflected in it. But really, and and there's a lot of truth to that. The public is largely behind abortion rights. There's largely no fight here. But the places where there are fights, the fights are really intense. And they do not reflect that national sentiment. And there are a lot of reasons about that we can talk about that. Some of that is political gerrymandering. Some of that is just geographic diversity. But I do think it is important to, to, you know, really drill down into that because we're going to hear about those differences as the court takes up this case and as those of us in the media continue to report it out. So there's this gap between, I mean, as you say, the majority of the country supports the status quo, the law, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But yet we now have this conservative majority on the court that could go a different direction. Mm Maria, you know, I, I, I talked about my own view, um, which is based on where I sit in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you live and work in Louisiana, which is the only state other than Mississippi to have passed a 15 week ban. And I think there is a sense that if the Mississippi law was upheld, the Louisiana ban would go into effect, correct? That's correct. Yeah. It's so they, they passed it at the same time, but, but with the caveat that it would actually only go into effect should Mississippi's law go, go into effect. So I assume, I mean, I, I see that you've written already a fair amount about the court's move and, and about what it could mean for the Mississippi law, I mean, I mean for the Louisiana law. And I imagine there is a fair amount of focused attention now in Louisiana on what's going on in this, around this case. I mean, this is this is just, you know, it's another battle in a war that has been going on for, I mean, for 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 so long. I started covering um, co- covering abortion as part of the healthcare beat uh, when I was working at the Times Picayune in New Orleans uh, back in 2017. They actually had me covering the the legislative sessions, so 
every year we'd go in and we'd kind of track uh, bills as they would come up and, you know, that they're related to abortion. And, um, and every year it was just some sort of variation of, of a new thing, some new way of, of really targeting uh, this type of healthcare and, and like, like you said, chipping away at it. So it's really been something that we look at every single year and it's, and it's a new battle that kind of, I don't know, is reframed every year. Yeah, now we're obviously we're looking at the 15 week ban, but I mean, just last year, you know, a six, about more than 60% of Louisianans voted to approve a constitutional amendment that would, you know, effectively ban abortion in the state should Roe v. Wade be overturned. Before that, um, the state was fighting to, to try to challenge this law that, that required abortion providers to be able to, to admit patients to a hospital within a 30 mile radius of their clinic. Um, so, so, so this is, like I said, this is, this is just something that, that kind of, you know, it's a, it's a battle that is ongoing. It takes on different sort of variations every year. And when people write about politics in Louisiana, or when they, even they write about when, when local outlets write about national politics, how common is it or how frequent is it for abortion to enter those stories? Because, and, you know, it's not something you read as much about in the New York Times or the Washington Post. I have the interesting perspective of having been able to write about this issue for a local publication, um, mm. you know, uh, the Times Picayune as it used to be. Uh, now it's part of the, uh, the Baton Rouge Advocate. Um, it uh, has statewide reach, but my, you know, this, the stories would mostly, you know, we, we had a very strong local local reach. So mm. there was a lot of interest in, in stories that, re- that related to this topic. Um, and now as part of the USA Today network, I'm covering the same topic, but on a regional level. We see this, you know, this sort of like copycat cat effect uh, for these laws, um, you know, mirroring each other across state borders. So it's kind of a larger scope of the same type of uh, reporting that I was doing locally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, there is a lot of interest in it. People are very passionate about this issue on either side of the conversation. Um, and unfortunately, I think there is a lot, you know, there is a lot of distrust in the media. So when I was covering um, abortion laws for uh, the Times Picayune, it was always really difficult, I found, to reach out to senators and people who sponsored these bills because they automatically had the assumption that I would not share their perspective. Mm-hmm. So it was even hard to even just have a conversation. Mm-hmm. So to, to achieve that kind of balance, which is so necessary with reporting these types of stories, was sometimes really, really challenging because people on, on that side of the conversation weren't necessarily very eager to talk to the media at least as far as legislators um, who I tried to tried speaking to on occasion. Maria, can I ask you, that's so interesting uh, on that last point you just made. And is, is there, is there assumption? And I imagine there's a, it's a range depending on the person, mm-hmm. but is it because they, they think that you disagree that journalists disagree with them and aren't going to give them a fair shake or that journalists look down on them and sort of patronize them and think that they're, they don't, what, you know, that, that, that it comes across as sort of condescending. I've never had that conversation with, with the senators, but I, I remember, for example, one case, this was a few years ago, there was, uh, Louisiana tried to pass um, uh, a six week ban. And I had reached out to the senator who sponsored it at the time. And, 
and he did not want to get on the phone with me, uh, did not want to talk to me. And it, and I had to reach out multiple times. And ultimately he ended up giving me, you know, he called me and he said, I don't absolutely, I don't want to take any questions. I'm just going to give you this very long statement that I want you to take down word for word. And that's, that's it. I couldn't uh -huh. challenge him on it. I couldn't ask him any questions. Uh -huh. And, you know, we had to, I mean, put down a couple sentences from the statement, but, but that was, you know, that was the extent of the quote unquote conversation. And I'm sure not everyone's like that. Um, I've certainly reached out to, uh, to organizations that are, um, you know, pro-life in Louisiana, and I've spoken with them and had statements and comments from them. Obviously my stories uh, included in my stories and they're, they're a little bit more amenable to talking. Um, but yeah, I think there is this perspective that, that reporters are going to, uh, you know, that we have, we come at this with, with our own opinions, with our own judgment, and that we're going to stick by that and not really give them a fair share at the conversation. Yeah. It's so interesting. Jessica, what are your thoughts about that, about, about how journalists may be perceived by people who are along the lines of what Maria's talking about? I mean, I certainly think that there is the overall, uh, assumption that journalists fall into liberal and progressive po uh, political spaces. Yeah. Um, so I think that that sort of carries some of it. You know, uh, it was fascinating for me to uh, listen to Maria as the perspective of somebody who really has been covering this for the last 10 years at a national outlet um, and, you know, tasked with finding patterns and and, you know, just like trends across the board in, in legislative uh, sessions. And because we've, you know, experienced reluctance too. And I've wondered if some of the reluctance from lawmakers to go on the record of, about these kinds of things or to really dig into that is because so much of this legislation is in the form of model legislation that advocacy groups sort of push out. And mm -hmm. so th there may be just a knowledge gap there, too, um, that reporters doing their job in a very objective way and asking questions that we do, they may feel vulnerable and exposed even by that, which, uh, which I think, you know, speaks to some of the nature of what happens at state legislatures around legislating around uh, abortion as a political issue rather than a medical procedure. Right. Jessica, you have expressed interest in how, in the language mm -hmm. um, um, that people use in writing about and how journalists need to sort of check themselves here. Like, what, what, did, what do you have in mind? What are you thinking of? So this is one thing, this is a, sort of a lesson from um, the um, old days of the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act. I don't know if any of you folks remember that, but we're starting to see it come back up in this new crop of very um, early rest or restrictions on uh, abortion very early in pregnancies. Um, and what we had in the early 2000s around um, the fight over uh, later abortion, which uh, the anti-choice movement had uh, termed the Partial Birth Abortion Act. So that was a that was a term that was sort of field tested in the movement and then attached to the legislation. And this isn't necessarily unique to anti-choice spaces at all. But what happened was that sort of got picked up and reported uncritically across the board um, in the media and it stuck. 
And so we're starting to see that now in the form of like, say, for example, six-week bands. Anti-choice advocates call these heartbeat bands. Well, the science doesn't support uh, that. There's no fetal uh -huh. heartbeat at six weeks. And so mm -hmm. I think that this is an opportunity for local and national media to ask lawmakers what they mean by this, because the public will respond to something like a fetal heartbeat. That, that is designed to create an emotional response in people. And we're legislating and we're polling off of that. But it's not science. And this is a healthcare issue. And so those are things that I just, those are nuances that I think the media really has an opportunity and frankly, a responsibility to hit. Mm. You know, th and this happens, you know, it happens on on so many issues. Mm -hmm. It happens on gun violence issues. It happens on climate issues where uh, advocacy groups try to sort of grab the terminology and it ends up having like serious implications. Mm -hmm. um, Maria, I know that um, you're part of the USA Today Network. And, and I know on some of these issues, the USA Today Network has sort of come out with style rules on language around issues that are in great debate. Has there been such a thing, any of these abortion-related terms? Not that I'm familiar with. Um, well, you would know. Or, or, that my editor, <laughs> or that my editor has brought up to me. Jessica referred to, you know, this one category of, of bans. Um, do, you, do you have any other examples of terminology that started as a kind of advocacy move that you've now seen picked up in the press that people need to be wary of? I appreciate what Jessica said about the fetal heartbeat language, because I remember having that conversation uh, with an advocacy group specifically about n not using, not using that term, which was, which became incredibly, like you said, I mean, incre incredibly overused in the press at the time uh, uh, when, when Louisiana was looking at this law a few years ago. I think that for my part, what I try to steer clear of is trying to stay away from that, from terms like pro-abortion, trying to, trying to, trying to, trying to use pro-choice that's more balanced. Um, another thing that I've been thinking a lot about recently and in conversations with advocates is really trying to be really careful about using the word women mm. in stories um, and really, uh, talking about it as, as pregnant people, uh, people who are uh, of reproductive age, um, and really trying to keep in mind that, you know, it's not only cis women who can get pregnant, and this, this extends to a larger swath of the population. So that's something that I, that I keep in mind, and that for my own stories, I try to try to push that, that type of language. So both of you have been, you know, you know, really been, you know, immersed in this topic for a long time and have been writing about it. We're about to enter a phase now over the next year or so where a lot of general interest reporters who don't normally cover abortion are going to be trying to make sense of this. What, what do you want to tell them? <laughs> what do you want to tell them as they're, you know, as, they, as they're in good faith or trying to, to do justice to the, to the story? Especially living in a place where we get a lot of a lot of parachuting uh, reporters who come in from other parts of the country and don't really understand the, the nuances of what it's like to live here. Um, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that we'll probably see a lot of that, a lot of people coming down to Mississippi, Louisiana, mm -hmm. as this kind of conversation heats up. 
And I, you know, I would just say that prepare yourself ahead of time, talk to as many, uh, as many advocacy groups ahead of time as you can, uh, talk to people on either side of the, on either side of the issue, obviously reach out to, a, 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 like people that run abortion funds, because they're, they're the ones that are working directly with, uh, with people who, you know, not only need financial help for, for these procedures, but also need the financial help to care for children, for transportation all these other things that come with trying to access this in this part of the country. I would say also try to get a better understanding of, of how, um, you know, the laws that might apply in one state could also very well affect people living in neighbor, neighboring states. It's very interconnected like that down here. Yeah. And just to build on that, you know, whenever possible, uh, talk to patients and providers. You know, this is a Mississippi's law uh, cuts off abortion access at 15 weeks. And we know that there are patients that need and have care at that point and later. And there are groups that um, work with collecting their stories and, and have them as patient advocates. And they are willing to share their stories. They are experts in their lives and in this experience. And it's so crucial to have their voices centered when and however we can along with providers in this because so often when abortion is in the national conversation, it's because it is a political issue. But one of the things we keep coming back to time and time again in this conversation is that it's a medical procedure. So I just always encourage reporters to talk to the people who have had the procedure and perform it to get an understanding of what the impact of the law really is. You know, Jessica, Maria writes about this issue for a, you know, a, a, a large media company um, that has a kind of mainstream audience. Mm-hmm. Um, you approach this in a much more, with a much stronger point of view, mm-hmm. um, and I mean, and and and, and you know, it's you read a few of your columns, and it's very easy to know that you yourself have a very, have a very strong point of view about mm-hmm. this. And it sort of does make me think about whether you think. This is this does remind me a lot of this sort of climate story, which is, you know, in recent years, we've sort of come to the point where journalism has sort of said, you know what, there's not really two sides to the climate story. Mm -hmm. There's not is climate crisis here or isn't it? It's here. Mm -hmm. And then so how do you think? How do you cover it? Mm -hmm. How how do you think about that? Is there is there an analogy to the abortion debate, which is like there isn't really two sides to this or am I being too glib here? I don't think you're being too glib. I think that we're largely tracking in that direction. And I think that I would add, you know, the conversation around gun violence as a public health issue um, to that category as well. I really firmly let the science drive my analysis You know, I'm an attorney before a journalist. I went to law school before, you know, my formal journalism training kicked in in that sense. And so, you know, and my background is in health law, right? So I come really at this perspective of reporting on this beat from being informed by those traditions as much as being informed by a journalist. And so, yes, I have a perspective on it. And it's a perspective that's informed by the science and by talking to the providers. And that is in the healthcare beat, I think, really the part that is very much like the climate debate. Because as we've seen the coverage shift, it's as reporters have really moved away from centering political voices and centering uh, more of the scientific community in that. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, it's totally interesting. And and, and I think that shift, uh, journalism has turned the corner around climate, I think. Um, you you very rarely now see stories where where news outlets are saying, well, these scientists say it's a problem, but here's a scientist who says that there's no such thing as, as climate change. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't usually see that. Maria, from where you sit, how far, I mean, do you, do you see, think it's possible that, that, that journalism could adopt that kind of stand broadly on abortion? That would be incredibly challenging. <laughs> I absolutely agree that we have to have the science at the forefront um, of these conversations. And that's why it's so important to talk to, to, to doctors, to the medical professionals that actually do this, who can talk about the, the safety and um, how, how safe this procedure is. I mean, there's so much misinformation about it. And that's why it's so important to include those voices in these stories. Um, but I think to a certain extent, uh, we can't overlook the fact that there are, there is a significant part of the population here who feels that this is, that this shouldn't exist. And we, you know, we can't, we can't, we can't necessarily block out those voices because they exist, right? To really fully cover this, I mean, I think in as much of a balanced way as we can, we have to try to to acknowledge at least that that those voices exist and that is the sentiment that people have. I'll, I'll bring back again the fact that over 60% of the population here in Louisiana voted to have an amendment that, that basically would, would null um, access to abortion should Roe v. Wade be banned. And that's, you know, that's a big chunk of the population to, to ignore. So I think, you know, we have to do our job as journalists and, and, and listen to them when they, when we can, and, and try to get, you know, at least try to get that into some of the stories. I mean, it's a challenge. Um, the, the story that I just recently did after um, following this week's news, looked at what access is, is right now in, in the South. And I certainly, I mean, I did, I did include uh, the perspective of, 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 a, of a pro-life organization, that story, but, um, but the story, I mean, really rested on the fact that and it is fact that, uh, that accessing a, a abortion services in this part of the country right now is incredibly difficult and particularly so if, if you don't have the means to do so. Well, both of you get some rest. This is going to be a long, <laughs> it's going to be a year. <laughs> I'm so glad you both came on. I really appreciate it. Again, Maria Clark, healthcare reporter with USA Today, and Jessica Mason Duplo with Rewire News Group. You can follow CJR's ongoing coverage of this on our website and our daily email and on Twitter and Facebook. See you next week.